Humanity versus the planet. Us versus them. Zero-sum game. Too often, that's how the climate emergency is described, as if humanity is hell-bent on its own destruction. But nothing could be further from the truth. Efforts at scale are underway to make the future we want for ourselves and the next generations possible. But what does that look like? How does it work? And what role can you play? This week's guest is the architect of the largest public-private partnership for climate justice in the world, rallying exponential support so we can meet the challenges we face with equal force. And he'll reveal to us what meaningful impact looks like and how business and everyone within it can play a critical role. So if you want to fix our future and find the confidence, courage, and course to get it done, listen in now. From We First and Goal 17 Media, welcome to Lead with We. I'm Simon Mannering, and each week I talk with purposeful business and thought leaders about the revolutionary mindsets and methods you can use to build your bottom line and a better future for all of us. And today I'm joined by David Clark, founder and CEO right here, right now, Global Climate Alliance, and CEO of David Clark Cause. And we'll discuss the state of the climate movement and how together we can course correct our future and how companies large and small can participate in deeply meaningful ways that will support business and solve for the challenges we face. So David, welcome to Lead With We. Thank you so much. A uh, pleasure to be here. So David, you've got a fascinating career and now you're in charge of a really, really powerful platform for transformation in the context of climate. But it always intrigues me. Like, how did this journey begin? Where did you start? How did you end up working in and around human rights and climate and trying to make a difference? Yeah, well, it's interesting. So the uh, nickel tour of my career began about 26 years ago. I decided as an entrepreneur to focus my talent on creating what I call cause brands, uh, which basically are issue driven and then build a coalition around them. And one of my first client partners was Muhammad Ali. So arguably at the time, he was the most famous person on planet Earth. And he wanted to leverage his fame to promote tolerance and understanding and fight bigotry and prejudice. So I partnered with Muhammad after a very long, long time working with the lawyers to get that hammered out, as you can imagine. And so we actually came out with a HarperCollins book called uh, Healing, a Journal of Tolerance and Understanding. And really, my job was to explain to Muhammad that everything he talked about in this little book was related to healing, healing racial divides, healing X, healing Y. And healing is a very powerful word for him because his name sat in the middle of it, right? H-E-A-L-I, Ali N-G. So creating the World Healing Project with Muhammad was really an eye-opener. And I saw that I was able to engage with people that I couldn't have dreamed of before, right? So I had the privilege to introduce Prince to his hero, Muhammad Ali, at our MTV press conference. So that was a really interesting way to start my career. It got the attention of the UN. And initially, they wanted me to do something around UN Human Rights Day. And this was about 20 years ago. Right. And my feeling was that the most powerful human rights icon at the time was uh, Nelson Mandela. So he had stepped down as the president. The UN at first, they were reluctant to approach Nelson Mandela. And I love that Irish expression, you know, come on, guys, pull up your socks. So nice. I kind of encouraged them to make the introduction. I went to South Africa. I had the privilege to 
meet with the president and really explain that he could use his stature to, to promote human rights in a unique way. Now, he pushed back and said, listen, I don't think I should do that because HIV AIDS is running rampant in my country and I don't want to look like I'm out of touch with my people. So right. I don't know. Um, so no, my pushback was, well, millions of people have died and will die, I said, because they're not dying because they're sick. They're dying because they're poor. If you let somebody die because they don't have access to life-saving drugs, that's actually not a health issue. It's a human rights failure. Right. right. So you know, we reframed HIV AIDS as the human rights crisis it was. We launched with a huge concert at Greenpoint Stadium in Cape Town. Uh, Queen was our house band that day, and we had Bono, Beyonce, the good and the great. But it, it worked. It worked. And so the 4664 campaign was thriving uh, literally until the time of the president's death. So quickly jumping ahead, the UN said, listen, we're having an issue with climate change. We can't get people to care. They can't wrap their mind around right. it. Sure. Right? Because your average person, they don't know the difference between, you know, megatons, gigatons, different forms of carbon capture, Right. So we thought about it and we're like, how do we humanize this issue? And staring at us right in the face was almost the same dilemma that we looked at 20 years before with, with President Mandela, is that climate change is a human rights crisis. Sure. Because women, children, people of color, poor, marginalized, will continue to suffer as it escalates. So our thinking in starting this literally about a year and a half ago is if we created the right here right now global climate alliance we would reposition climate change as the human rights crisis that it is and i've got a question about that because you've had these seminal moments in cultural or global history where there's an inflection point where you need to elevate an issue to address something that's becoming a systemic problem how does this moment in time with climate compare for example the hiv aids moment that you had, you mentioned before and so on because you know, a lot of people are saying in and around climate, we've had global challenges before and we'll get through this one again. Or is this sort of different by an order of magnitude in some way? Yeah, no, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's different by an order of magnitude. Absolutely. It's, it's an existential threat that people now feel, right? It's not just Al Gore talking about it or Leonardo DiCaprio screaming in the forest, hey, this is going to happen. People feel it. They absolutely feel it. And I think people understand that it is this ex existential threat. People have been working on it, governments have been working on it. But I think what we're finding out is that people are starting to come to our movement because they're actually losing a little bit of hope in government's ability to act because of the partisanship, quite frankly. And you know, I wanna dig into the movement in a moment, but you, you mentioned hope there. You have a better line of sight than almost anybody out there in terms of not only the challenge, but what's being done to address it. How should we feel, David? I mean, is this the end of time? Should we throw up our hands? You know, like, is, is, is it cause for alarm or is it this is a moment of optimism because we lean into the best of humanity? Like, give us a sense of how you feel from your perspective. Well, it's, it's actually a double-edged sword. So I feel that the magnitude of the problem it should be ringing everybody's alarm bells. But I do believe that you don't sell success with fear, you sell that with hope. And so our goal with Right Here Right Now is to create global activations, global movement that actually inspire people to act, to come together, and quite frankly, provides both a carrot and a stick, right? Explaining like where, what will happen if we all work together 
But also, if we don't, what's going to happen? So I think that, you know, our challenge is to work with smartest people on the planet, people like your good self to actually come up with messaging that does provide hope. You had the opportunity to go to several COPs. I mean, many, many COPs in the past, and you were at COP27, which is the global climate summit that just took place in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. You know, we've all read about it in the headlines. Give us a sense of what that experience is like. I've heard everything from it's sweltering heat outside to bone chilling air conditioning on the inside, which is almost like this caricature of the juxtaposition of the issue in some way. But like, you know, what's it like to be there? Do you feel like there's momentum? Is there rigor to what's going on? Or does it feel like a lot of politicking? Well, the first thing you, you experience when you fly into Sharm el-Sheikh, you know, for the, for the latest cop that, that, that just recently ended is to see the endless line of private jets is really amazing. Right. I think there was probably 400 private jets at this very small airport right off of the Red Sea. So that was kind of interesting. Back mm-hmm. to the juxtaposition of the sweltering heat and the freezing cold with the, with the air conditioners. So, you know, there is definitely a sense of urgency with the cop. People, especially at this cop, were really looking for, you know, developing nations to pay their fair share. Right. Because a lot of the low lying coastal nations and a lot of the developing world, they're doing the least to contribute to the problem and they're bearing the brunt of of this catastrophe. So the thing that was really an eye-opener for me is Ian Fry, the special rapporteur for human rights and climate change, he made a point that people were losing hope in COP because it really turns it into lowest denominator, denominator politics, right? Because you have to get all the 193 member states to agree. So what happens if country X or Y or Z, I won't name, you know, don't go along. So it actually waters down anything that could be aspirational. So we thought it was very interesting that people are actually turning to right here, right now and saying, listen, we need out of the box thinking, we need a movement, we need something that can actually galvanize the planet. So. Quite frankly, it was an eye-opener to hold a press conference there and have people direct their attention towards what we're doing. Okay, so let's let's dig into that for a second because I think, myself included, some folks might look at, oh, okay, you know, climate action is a human right, but what do we mean by a human right? Is that sort of some inalienable right or universal right for everyone on the planet? And if so, how is it protected? Or is it just, is it recontextualizing you know, the need to address climate to protect people's ability to live and thrive? Like, what does it mean when you recharacterize it as a human right? Well, it's interesting. So that's actually a good question. Thank you. So the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was created you know, 74 years ago after World War II, and it really set out the basic rights for men and women, things that really are inalienable, inalienable rights. Now, how we, we infuse those into the climate conversation is really important. So the last COP in in Glasgow, COP26, part of the continual movement of COPs, they're actually recognizing for the first time that the right to a clean and healthy environment is a fundamental human right. And if you infringe upon that, you're actually running afoul of the law, quite frankly. So there was huge discussion by a number of nations to actually drop that language because they started to see that they're liable for their inaction, right? Right. And so that created a huge uproar and actually the language stayed. So, you know, as a fundamental human right, we all, no matter where we live, have a right to live in a clean 
you know, environment to a healthy environment. So climate change is actually moving that way. And one other thing I'll add to that is by reclassifying climate change as a human right, it's profound because then all of a sudden people's rights as it relates to climate change are protected right. by the law that already exists. So instead of actually starting to move through nations to create laws that actually protect people, it just recategorizes it so it actually is protected by human rights law that actually exists on the books now. It's such an, a, a crazy moment in time for humanity as a species, for all of us around the world right now, because there's this inherent tension, which sounds like it played out a cop between the urgency of the issue and the culpability of the global north, you know, the developed nations that created most of these emissions. And at the same time, you've got the emissions gap. They, I heard that we're still on track for 2.7 degrees rise in temperature as opposed to the goal of 1.5 degrees Celsius. You know, but then there's the obligation of the reparations to these, you know, undeveloped nations or the global south. Like, how do those tensions play out? You're walking around the corridors. Language is literally sort of reconstituting <laughs> itself in the air and it's being pulled in both directions. What? How does it resolve itself? And and what what was your sense of? Did we knit out in a good what in a good place in the end? Because I know there was you know language around creating a fund to address these issues and so on. Correct. Yeah. So I think actually nobody wanted to walk away empty handed. So I think that towards the end, there was a good result. This fund is being created, but what we need to do now is we need to fund it, right? So that's why I think it's imperative to get the public to mobilize, to demand that this actually gets funded. So, right. So right. it's not just a straw man. So I think that's important. I think one of the other things that is important and one of the things we were there to also help announce is the creation of the human rights climate commitments. And so what that's going to be is the seminal international document we're creating with our partners at UN Human Rights. And it's going to actually list prescriptively, what are the obligations of duty bearers? And I know that sounds very UNEs, but yeah, yeah. duty bearers. What we're talking about is what are the obligations of national governments cities, universities, you know, corporations, which is a huge element here, and individuals. And what are the things that they can do to actually help people writ large, but especially the marginalized groups of people that are, are, are suffering the most. And so that document is being worked on now. It's going to be an iterative process. We're seeking, you know, the best and brightest to, to contribute. And then we're going to unveil the very first draft at COP28 in Dubai. And so that document is going to be a living document that will be continually updated at the Right Here, Right Now Global Climate Summit, because we always need to refresh it with the latest facts on the ground, the latest sure. need, the, the, you know, just the latest and the greatest. So the idea is that it's actually always, you know, reflecting what's going on on the ground. And, you know, what I'm taking away is difficult, but positive momentum moving forward, all on the strength of you know, efforts like right here, right now. And I want to sort of dig into it. Like right here, right now, it's the largest public-private partnership around climate action on the globe. How on earth did you build that? When did it start? And and help people understand exactly what it is. Yeah. So again, this it, it really it's really the product of 26, 27 years of work and, and understanding how you build the architecture to actually hold lots of different content. And in this case, content comes in the form of different sectors of society. So working with UN Human Rights, we knew that we needed the overall global alliance. And our global partner is UN Human Rights. 
And then we can actually welcome like-minded people, organizations, governments into that alliance. And what we're doing now is, you know, through right here, right now, music, which we're going to announce shortly. We're going to be doing a series of concerts around the world. And right here, right now, technology, it actually includes Call for Code, which is the largest engagement of developers. It's going to include a sports component, a publishing component. So we're actually welcoming all different sectors of society to kind of share our messaging and kind of, you know, add another tent pole to make this, this, this as sturdy as, as possible. And is the intention behind it to leverage all of these different sort of expressions of culture around the world to raise awareness or is it to get people engaged or is it to sort of petition for the funding of that fund that was set up? Like what's the goal? Yeah, it's all of the above, but I think, I think what people want to hear is they want to hear that you're making impact. And we don't want to do anything that's not driving impact. The goal isn't to do a concert to just raise awareness, right? The goal is to drive impact. And that's why the human rights climate commitments are so important, because everything we do will map to that North Star, right? So if we're doing a concert, we're going to be enrolling people. We're going to be asking people to donate. Why donate? Because we're going to lay out corporations that are starting that can actually have impact through the technology they're creating. So everything we're doing, that's the yardstick. How do we impact humans? And, and how does that human rights element turn into a differentiator? And, you know, one of the things I struggle with is it seems like by virtue of being sentient, conscious human beings at a higher order level than perhaps other species out there in some ways, it's a double-edged sword because on one hand, we sit there and go, well, we know we're in trouble, but you go first or it wasn't my fault. Or yeah. on the other extreme, if you are part of the solution, you go, it's my credit. I did the change. We're not doing this all together. How did you resolve getting all of these otherwise competitive or self-serving partners within an industry or a cultural lens to work together to this end? Well, it's, yeah, it's interesting. That's an interesting question because I've never gotten anybody or any organization to do anything by explaining why it's good for me. You have to explain why it's good for them. And you also have to bring in best in class partners. So it's like the old adage, right? Like how do you get people to jump in the pool? You get the coolest person to jump in first. Mm -hmm. And so with a global partner like UN Human Rights, right? Which is the UN organization that oversees the human rights for 193 member states, it's the gold standard. So okay. then when you're creating the technology play, right? Right here in now tech, you start at the top and you work your way down. So the first person in the pool, Techstars, an amazing organization, right? The first group that would jump in on the music front would be the Recording Academy. They produce the Grammys. And so all the way down the line, we seek best-in-class partners, which actually get other people excited. And they might join the coalition for their own reason, because they want to rub, rub elbows with the good and the great. But that's fine, as long as they're joining and we can marshal their time and talent towards one unified goal. I don't care why they came to the party. And, and is, each, is the job of each one of these pillars peculiar to what they do? So right here, right now, publishing is putting out content, books, materials to that end. Music is rallying people and raising donations. Is that it? And they each play a different role within this bigger tent. That's exactly right. So we're really leaning on, you know, it's almost like building, you know, building a house, right? The carpenters do their thing. The plumbers do their thing. The, 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 the bricklayers do their thing. Like you, you need to bring that all together really like a symphony orchestra, right? And how do you get the different players 
to actually join your awesome symphony, you explain a common vision that they can all get behind, right? This right. is the music that we want to create, but we can only create it together. And so the different players start to jump in when they see the people that they respect come in. And, and it's funny because somebody once asked me, like, what was the most important business course I ever took? And I was a liberal, liberal arts major. And my answer was simple. It, it was child psychology. You mm -hmm. know, Stevie wants to play with a toy if he thinks Jane wants to play with a toy and vice versa. And so it's just really appealing to the best of these people that actually want a communal experience and they want to work on something together that will work. Yeah, I mean, I, you're, I, by virtue of this being lead with we and so on, I'm so deeply invested that in the idea that the solution turns on collaborative leadership and so on. I want to ask one question, though. I mean, one of the concerns around the whole kind of climate movement, but even more broadly, UN activities has been inertia or the bureaucracy or the kind of you know, time it takes to get all the different stakeholders to agree on something. So it's one thing to get that sort of punitive element introduced when you establish climate action or is a, is a human right, but to enforce that is another thing. Whether you look at business and corporations participating, how are they penalized for not participating? Is it simply the disapproval of various stakeholders like investors and employees and consumers, or is there now increasingly climate justice lawsuits and they're going to be forced to do it through regulation and so on? Well, it's, it's, it's all of that. That's the interesting thing. It's all of that, right? What, what motivates you to do that good thing, right? Fear of not doing it, getting in trouble, being incentivized. So there really isn't one thing. It's all of those things. And so depending on who you're dealing with or what organization, you need to actually pull all of those, those different tools out of your, your tool chest. So it's all of those things. But I think when you educate your average person and they understand that this company is purpose-driven and they're actually you know, doing the right thing, every study shows that even with higher price points, people will select their goods and services. But you have to tell them, right? right. I remember hearing this interview with Ted Turner that I thought was funny. They asked him what the secret of success was. And he's like, well, you know, you work like hell and then you advertise. You know, you've got to get the word out. You need to let people know. So what it is, is it's the ability to badge yourself as an individual or an organization as compliant with right here, right now, as an example, or you're going to be called out. It's, it's going to be, you'll be, you'll, it'll be obvious who's not. And so we'll give consumers the ability to make choices and we're going to create right here, right now policy. So we're not going to tell you who to vote for, but we're going to tell you, we're going to explain what, what, what are the policies that we think are going to help move the needle. And then you can compare whatever candidate you're thinking about voting for wherever in the world, does that person share your values? But when people are so busy with their average uh, everyday life, they need to have this served up in a way that they, that, that, that they can understand, that they can consume, right? So that's part of the part of the job is bringing in people that know how to do that, bringing in that expertise. And that's what's so interesting about corporations. This is really the first initiative I've been working on with the UN where corporations are a huge part of the problem, but also the solution. And let's talk about that. Like, so how can they participate and maybe give us a, 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 a concrete example of a company that's showing up in a meaningful way? Yeah. So as an example, so Call for Code is a developer challenge that is that lives under right here, right now tech. It was created five years ago 
The goal was really to create the Nobel Prize for developers so we could appeal to the 24 million developers around the world to innovate for social good. Right. And so, you know, in discussions with the UN, it was clear that we needed a tech giant that shared our values that could also help us from an operational point of view. And the number one company was IBM. And so we reached out to IBM. We're fortunate they answered the call. And six months after the first meeting, we were in Paris at the VivaTech conference with the then CEO, Ginny Rometty, and French President Macron, and IBM put up the first $30 million to actually implement Call for Code. And so, you know, five years later, we get over a million submissions every year. There's been like 25,000 apps that have been created. It works. But to have the reach of a global corporation out there pushing, making sure that we still have approval over what they do, right? So there's no greenwashing and there's no, nobody's hijacking any cause brand. These companies, they see all of the benefits, right? So it's easier for them to recruit. It's easier for them to retain employees. All of a sudden people see this good that they're doing. And quite frankly, they end up buying more of their goods and services. And so they should, because this company is actually doing great work. No, yeah, being on the right side of history is going to be increasingly important, but also you're going to capture those market forces that are increasingly rewarding those companies are showing up this way. And what are some of the issues that like, for example, Call for Code has addressed, like in sort of brass tacks, like what issues to take on or what are the winning prizes? What do they address? Yeah. So I'll give you a couple of examples. The very first winner was a group called Project Owl. And they noticed that after Hurricane Maria, that clearly when there's like a, a natural disaster like that, or, or shall we say a man-made disaster, because it's a product of climate change, all communication breaks down. So even first responders can't communicate to actually go save people. And right. so, you know, that's where you see those pictures of people in their house writing SOS. And so what Project Al did is imagine, if you will, like a little rubber duck. And in that rubber duck, there's hardware and software. And so they created this technology where from drones or planes, you could just drop these little rubber ducks. They start to talk to each other and they create a pop-up internet. So imagine when you go to Starbucks, it prompts you to join the network. Right. Well, that's what happens now in the aftermath of these natural disasters because this technology was created where we can always create an internet so people can email, people can use it to call, first responders use it. So it's rolling out. Uh, another one that I thought was ingenious, two years ago, there was a firefighter in Barcelona who actually held his colleague as he died, quite frankly. And he was just, he just, you know, they knew that, 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 that they didn't know exactly what kind of toxins were in the air and it was a real problem. And so that firefighter talked to an emergency nurse and they brought in three developers and they created this wearable device that in real time monitors a firefighter's vital statistics, as well as the air quality, it crunches them down. It's easily visible on a dashboard that the fire chief looks at. And so he can see that, you know, Juan is back in the green so he can get back into the fight or Susan, she's going into the yellow, into the red, she needs to get out and actually recover. So these are things that actually save lives, but it's just because we're creating this platform of hope and possibility. And then we give these developers and innovators tools 
and then they come up with solutions. Uh, I love that. I mean, you know, one of the things I took away from COVID-19 and I wrote about in Lead With We is how brands are becoming first responders. You know, we, in COVID, we saw them sort of make PPE equipment and ventilators and, and, and meals for medical and first responders. So are you seeing now that corporations are rising to this challenge to almost be like a fourth emergency service where they just show up in meaningful ways? Because it sounds like every year Call for Code is doing something different, correct? Correct. Yeah, no, I think, it, well, every year what we do is we kind of focus on different, different aspects of climate change. And we've added, uh, you know, in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, we added Call for Code for racial justice. So as an example, you know, if you're a defense attorney, you can actually go in during sentencing and you can actually tell the judge exactly what your client would get if they were white, if they were brown, whatever color they are, there's actually big data that is crunched. And so all of a sudden it's embarrassing to give person X a long sentence because it doesn't jive with actually the data that's coming out or- sure. You know, with all these laws that cha that change daily, you know, people actually can now get an app where all of the issues on the ballot are easily explained. They're provided with maps to the latest polling places, what the bus route is even to get there. So all of this technology is fantastic. And when COVID-19 broke, you know, we were able to get Lady Gaga to come out and promote, hey, you know, developers, you guys are rock stars. We need your help. So it's also about making sure you get influencers that people listen to. I think sure. that's that's important all the way down the line. So even with right here, right now, we launched it from Glasgow last year. And you know, we were proud to have Leonardo DiCaprio out front and center tweeting and posting about the importance of right here, right now and treating climate change as as a human right. So that's helpful because he encourages politicians to jump on and talk about, you know, getting people in the pool, right? So it's all about influence, all about influence. And I mean, I want to kind of click through the ecosystem that you build. You know, you've got the overarching architecture about climate action as a human right. And then you've got the role that corporations can play. And it's one thing that technology can do because it's so little in terms of the impact it can have. But what about the arts, music? photography, some things that are less kind of tangible in terms of their impact. Like how can we all participate? Because we're all anxious about our climate future. Yeah, exactly. So we're actually starting to articulate what all these different sectors can do. So as an example, photography. So we've got photography for humanity. We're actually opening up the photography for humanity exhibit uh, at the University of Colorado to help launch the summit. And then that exhibit will go to Gallery A, which is outside of the General Assembly, you know, at the UN in New York. But what we're doing is we challenged this year, we challenged photographers around the world to show us, to show us the people that we're, we're trying to help, to show people that are suffering because of, of climate disasters, right? So the images are just, just amazing. I mean, you, the winning image is this man sitting by his house as it's sliding into the Ganges because of erosion. And you'll see this like beautiful young Dinka girl just seeing her village just underwater. So you just, it's important to actually engage people in all the arts, right? So what would you do for writers? Well, we clearly need to tell these stories. You need to inspire people by telling stories, by painting pictures with words that people understand. So all of the arts are welcome to join the Right Here, Right Now Coalition. So uh, I really can't think of any sector of, of society 
that couldn't contribute. And I think that's part of it. When when you've got this great big potluck and, and people feel like they're all welcome, they just need to bring their particular dish, I think it it, it really helps. It, you know, I, I couldn't agree more. And my overriding sense of this moment in human history, which sounds very lofty, is that it's not about learning something new. It's remembering what we forgot, which is that we are connected to each other. I live in your home in as much as I live in Los Angeles, but the planet is our shared home. You live in my home. We are all connected to each other and the one planet that we share. And it's almost like we need to take the best, the highest purpose and best selves and humanity to kind of reweave that social fabric and connective tissue between us. And I bring that up because what we're working against are forces that have pulled us apart whether it's social media and whether it's politicking and, and nationalism and, and various other things, how can right here, right now kind of be a counterbalance to a lot of those very, very strong forces that have been working to get against these solutions for some time? Is it just well, the weight of humanity? Well, I think it's the weight of humanity, but I also think it's, it's putting a human face on the people that are going to suffer by you know, the choices that we make, the inactions we take. So just imagine for a moment, right, where you're sitting in a, you know, at the crosswalk in Manhattan and, you know, some woman falls down. The reflex of at least 10 people there is to go help her. They don't stop and ask who's a Republican, who's a Democrat, sure. who, you know, what your socioeconomic status is. They see that human need and they all react. Right. And so one of the, one of the, the aspects of reframing and, and, and really rebranding climate change as a human rights issue is it's depoliticizing the issue. So we're finding that people that have their own brands, right? Like famous athletes and musicians, they're now able to say, hey, you know what? We're gonna come out for this because it's not just climate, which has been politicized, it's now a human rights issue. So we can all embrace it. So I think that is just a huge point because I've never seen anything like the, like the momentum it that we're getting from that messaging. It's huge. I mean, you know, if there's, I was once asked recently, you know, what is the one skill leadership needs to develop with a view to our future, course correcting our future. And something that showed up in me was really empathy. And I think that's innate to us, but it's what you're talking about there. It's our emotional connection to each other and these reflexes that are hardwired chemically into all of us to care for each other and be connected to each other. Obviously this ambition that you then what you built it right here right now is extraordinary, but there's obviously obstacles in the way. What are the most difficult things right now? Is it kind of getting a consensus across either heads of state or government or cities? Is it getting corporations that are otherwise competitors to come together? What are the challenges? One of the challenges that we face is different organizations in the climate movement. So if we're not doing everything, you know, all at once, they might say, well, what about my issue? Or what about my issue? Or, you know, what about, you know, uh, X, Y, and Z. So it's making sure they understand that we're going to get there, right? And that they don't start throwing tomatoes because we're not addressing their specific issue at that specific moment, right? Because I think you're, I think people are kind of jaded. And I also think it's easier to to burn something down than to build something. So when they actually understand what we're doing, we find that they're sympathetic, they're empathetic, and they actually join the movement. So I think the biggest challenge is just making sure that we're communicating properly, that we share their values, yeah, you know, and, but, 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 there's, but there's also a systematic way to actually get there. And imagine, you know, there's, it's a double-edged sword, but it's also the, there's the, the positive side to it. All of these issues like, you know, climate emergency and biodiversity and ocean acidification and so on, they're all connected. 
in a negative way. But also if you solve for one issue over here, they're also connected in terms of a solution. So indirectly by solving for any issue, arguably you're solving for all of the issues. So people can feel less kind of you know, on the side there that their issues being sidelined. Would you say that's fair or no? Well, that's, that's right. That's right. And it's not like, you know, our goal is pretty simple, right? We're here to protect people. We're here to protect marginalized people. So it's not that hard to wrap your, your mind around that. Right. So if, if you agree with us, come on board. Right. So it's, 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 we, we, we've really broken this down into like a very common denominator, but to your point, when one wins, they all start to win and all these yeah. different sectors. So I think that's really the, the the more exposure right here right now gets, I think the more traction we're going to continue to get. And I and I see that every day. It's it's accelerating. So, you know, I'm I'm pretty hopeful that we'll we'll be able to to, you know, get as many different constituents on board as possible. And, and the sort of the literal meaning behind right here, right now is is it a message of urgency? Is that we've all got to show up individually, and, and this is the moment. Is that is that what we should take away from that? That's exactly right. That it's the time is now, right? So it's not to ponder and think. It's like to help that woman who fell down in the street now, right? right. All, little actions that you can take right here, right now. So you know, woven into the branding is that immediacy, but also this idea that it relates to human beings, right? There's a human being right here. There's a human being in front of you. So I think we need to make sure that that that, that the human element stays front and center so it doesn't turn into an abstract. And and how can it us, each of us as individuals participate? I mean, we talked about corporations, we talked about the larger architecture, we talked about the arts and the role for all all media or mediums, you know, to participate. But here am I, I'm Simon, I'm a dad, I live in Los Angeles, I've got two daughters and I care about their future. How can we all participate in right here, right now? What can we do? Yeah, so I think we're going to be, well, it, it, it's really how we we time it out, right? So what we want to do is we want to actually have, you know, a list of things that people can do, right? So that's why the, the public call to action has not happened yet. You don't want to do that and have people go, well, what? what? We no, want to be very yeah, specific yeah. and very intentional about these are the things you can do. These are the micro things you can do. These are things that parents can do, you know, even through right here, right now, education. We're actually building out curriculum for K through 12. So even teachers can go, well, I don't understand. Oh, wait a minute. There's a resource here. This makes sense. So the idea is to actually create all this content so parents, kids, whoever can actually go, okay, I want to engage with right here, right now, because these are ideas that we have. Like right. as an example, we have a university coalition. At last look, I think we're a little over 2,300 universities around the world that are part of the right here, right now university coalition. And we're actually coming up with action items for all the universities, right? So what are we going to ask uh, students in the physics department to do and computer science to do and business and arts and right? So everybody can, can be counted and everybody can go, oh, wow, I didn't think about that. That's great. And then ask them like, what, how do you think this can be better? Right? So there's something powerful about open sourcing this so we take ideas from from anybody, right? I, I so, love that because it's like all of these issues feel like they're bigger than any of us, but they're not bigger than all of us. That's right. That's right. But that's what gives people hope when like, you know, the dance major mm -hmm. can see, you know, the folks over there working on some code and that the coders can actually see people working on a dance that hopefully is going to move people to action. And right. so when all these different things start to happen, it just really emboldens people 
and inspires them because they feel like they're part of a winning team. And do you come away from COP and do you come away from 25 years of doing this long, long before the urgency was so real and present for everyone around the world? Do you, when you look at that narrative arc, when you look at the engagement on a global level, are we at that inflection point? Are we at that point where you go, you know what, finally all stakeholders are at the table and we, we understand the stakes and we're, we're taking sufficient action. Are, are we there yet? Well, we're, we're, we're clearly not taking sufficient action yet, but I think we are at the point where we've got everybody's attention. I've never seen it on a global level. And, and, and it's interesting because I think one of the inflection points was COVID. Just imagine your life, everybody's life, right? Their, their, their lifespan. When bad things happen, they usually happen to other people or right. these people might get cancer or these people might have suffered in a, a drought or a flood. But with COVID, for the first time in our living memory, we all shared a common experience. Mm -hmm. It didn't matter if you were rich or you were poor, you could get COVID. You had the same fears. You were afraid of infecting other people. You were afraid you were going to get infected. So it was a really interesting point in, in humanity where I think people felt interconnected as they never, ever had before. And that actually is very helpful to what we're doing because people now have a sense of community, global community, and that, that things can actually affect everybody at the same time in ways they just never could have imagined. Yeah, I think that that shared suffering, as tragic as it was, was a shared experience, as you say, and it kind of broke down all these false separation that were built between each other and sort of calcified over time. What do you think the future of climate action will look like? Because it doesn't feel linear. It doesn't feel like each year it's going to get a little bit worse and we're just going to need to do a little bit more. It feels exponential, like it's going to go a hockey stick up. So what can we expect in the next three to five years, do you think, in terms of engaging around right here, right now, and, and how that infused, is infused into our daily lives? Yeah. So our goal basically, right, is to be this global movement. We are the largest public-private, so private initiative dealing with climate justice. So I think as it starts to galvanize, it, you know, you don't just get one new member a day. All of a sudden, you start to see this exponential growth. And my, my hope is that exponential growth maps to what's happening with, with climate. And so all of a sudden, you know, I'll just take call for code as an example. You know, we didn't have 16 developers working on an issue. The ability to actually have 500, 600, 700,000 at a time is breathtaking. And so we're going to apply solutions at scale, right? So as an example, even using human rights, we're working with a group, uh, Boston Consulting and IBM, and we're creating a rubric where we're actually going to judge companies, their impact, not only on the environmental impact and their financial impact, right? Because companies have to be sustainable, but what are they also doing for people? So, so that might sound small, but it's not. So we're actually bending the, the discussion with, with climate technology towards humanity, right? And by doing that, we're able to enroll exponentially more people. So we think that with, you know, when you're dealing with an issue, you know, as large and, and, and omnipresent as climate change, you need to have, you know, a solution of scale. And so 
that's one of the reasons that actually it's it's funny, right? It, it It's almost easier because it's bigger. If it was small and it was local, people wouldn't have much hope. Yeah, yeah. But when they see how big right here, right now is, how global it is, how we're actually working in every sector, that tells them that that this, the scale is going to meet the issue, right? It, it's like a world war. Like you don't want to see like the local tire manufacturer cranking out a few tires. You want to see a whole industry rising to meet that challenge. And, you know, one of the reasons I have enormous respect to you, David, is, you know, you've been doing this work for 25 years. And, you know, I think in the abstract, we can all understand what that's like in the sense that it must have been very lonely back in the day when people really yeah. weren't prioritizing these things. And it's like, True. wow, it's really nice that people like you, David, exist, but we're going to go over here and make some money. From your vantage point of 25 years in this work, what on a personal level gives you hope? Yeah, no, well, it's interesting that 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 you mentioned that you know, 25, 26 years ago, what did what what did this landscape look like? And and when you're talking about co corporate social responsibility, nobody cared. Like like nobody was doing it. Quite frankly, it was like the two hippies that were you know hanging out in the in the broom closet. I mean, it was just it was wasn't anywhere. So now it's everywhere. So it's nice to have been doing it for so long. So right. So we've got credibility and. You know, we've always we've all worked with everybody's hero, right? So that was the funny thing about Nelson Mandela. You know, he was an amateur boxer, so the fact that 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 I worked with Muhammad Ali was interesting to him because he, his hero was Muhammad Ali. So all of these things start to build on each other, and I've and I'm hopeful because I've seen real results, real results. I mean, it was very interesting. So after the you know our big event in South Africa, Nelson Mandela's grandson took a bunch of us out and he said, listen, because of what you decided to do and manifest, you know, and get my grandfather involved in hundreds of thousands of people that would have died will not die. I mean, that is an actionable thing, right? So, so I've seen real results. And so I have no doubt that, that right here, right now is going to deliver the same types of results, especially at the scale that we're, we're operating at now, for sure. A related question, David, you know, obviously there's always an intention inherent to these sorts of things between the aspiration of an event or a convening of people and the logistics and the business and the bottom line and the dollars of getting it done. Does that ever get in the way? Well, that's actually an interesting question because you have to be mindful of all of those things, which is why, you know, you never go public with something you're going to do unless you know you can do it, <laughs> quite frankly, right? So, you know, you you have to be very mindful of the fact that a lot of people are tugging at your sleeve. Everyone's got their own agenda. So you have to like really, really focus on, you know, your North Star and where you want to go. So you don't compromise because, you know, it's easy. And so you have to you have to make the rule before you start the game. And then you know how to play. You don't make up the rules as you as you play the game because it would be dangerous. You have to know where your north star is so you don't you don't you don't lose track. And I just want to say, Dave, you know, much respect for you and what your team and what the partners are building and architecting as you know cultural architects. You're building this big tent through which we can all participate. And my great ask to everybody listening is that when you see those opportunities to show up through through whatever lens you look at your participation. This is our opportunity to leverage our collective might to get the results we need that will serve all of our futures. So thank you for the time today, David. Thank you for the leadership and, and we all look forward to participating. 
Thank you so much, Simon. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Lead with We. Our show is produced by Goal 17 Media, and you can always find more information about our guests in the show notes of each episode. Make sure you follow Lead with We on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you really love the show, share it with your friends and colleagues. And if you're looking to go even deeper into the world of purposeful business, check out my new book and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Lead with We, which is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Google Books. See you again soon. And until then, let's all lead with wind.